electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, Apple tapping the brakes, reportedly slowing hiring and spending for the next year. The tech giant prepping for a potential economic slowdown. The ripple effect across corporate America coming up. Plus, a building bummer. Home building sentiment takes a historic drop this month. It's largest one-month plunge in the 37-year history of this survey. Is the housing boom about to go bust again? And later, Netflix on the clock. They report tomorrow the street bracing for subscriber losses in the millions, with the stock already down nearly 70% this year. Should investors prepare for more pain? I'm Leslie Picker, in for Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, Bono and Eisen, Dan Nathan, Jeff Bills, and Julie Beal from Kane Anderson Rudnick. Thank you guys for being here. And we'll start with a $50 billion hiring freeze, a report that Apple plans to slow the pace of job growth and spending in some departments. That sent the stock sharply lower midday, erasing $52 billion from its market cap. By the end of the day, it's just the latest tech company to cut back on hiring plans. Vimeo today joining the names names like Alibaba and Tesla in planning layoffs, while Alphabet, Meta, and Intel are just some of the companies putting a pause on payroll additions. The Apple news seemed to have an impact on the broader market as well with the major indexes all giving up gains in the afternoon. The Dow swinging more than 650 points from high to low and closing down one-tenth of a percent. So as we get into the heart of tech earnings, are we going to get more warning signs like this for the future? Dan Nathan, is it, it's one thing to have layoffs. It's another thing yeah. to pause hiring. I mean, it, should we make what yeah, should we make listen, of this? This is being pieced out. First of all, welcome to the desk here, Pick. Thank this is kind of fun here. Thanks. We're gonna have a little fun today. All right, it's so you fun. just called it the fifty-two billion dollar layoff question. <laughs> Again, we don't know what they're gonna be asked this question when they report their earnings next week, and they're probably kind of piecing this information out. They don't want it all to come out. We've been talking about, you know, for a month or so since Microsoft pre-announced the, the existing quarter because of FX headwinds. So sometimes these companies like to get the information out there little by little. So then when you know basically Basically, with a report and guide, it's not all one big bomb, if you will. And again, you know, um, you think about Apple, the way it's acted over the last few weeks, it was up 17% at its highs today. It literally traded to a penny of where it was on June 1st before it sold off after it had a little runoff of its May lows here. And if you think about what the S&P 500 did over that same period of time, it was up about 8%. So Apple doubled the performance of the S&P 500 off the lows and the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ 100 was up about, I don't know, 10 or so percent. So I think investors were maybe looking for an excuse to lighten up when you look at the day chart and you see that headline. It went down in the straight line here. But again, I think this is probably a better way to get all the bad news out little by little than all at one report when they were very likely to guide lower for the at least the existing quarter. No, that's a good point. But Bono and I, I have to ask, because this is Apple we're talking about here. You know, it's one thing to put Vimeo in that camp of slowing hiring or, you know, another smaller tech company announcing layoffs or something like that. But what does it indicate that Apple is striking a more cautious tone? I mean, this is a company that has really withstood its economic challenges, whether it be the pandemic or even the financial crisis over the last decade and a half or so. So 
if they're the ones pausing hiring, what does that say about the rest of the economy? Uh, that's a great point. And it's been companies small and large. I think some of it is kind of floated under the radar. Or there's been like some lagging in terms of periodicity, in terms of companies saying, whether it be Netflix or Tesla, et cetera, saying that, hey, we are going to slow down here. But I think Apple, Dan mentioned it, has kind of been the bellwether. It's been the safe haven. It's been, I mean, all the superlatives, you can just kind of pile onto that. And it's been like that perceived margin of safety. And it's, it's, it's come across as being very impervious. And now that they're saying, actually, you know what, this uh, macroeconomic situation actually applies to us as well. I, I think investors are taking notice. Now, I do think it's a good job on their part in terms of getting out in front of things and being transparent and kind of like setting the tide for w w what is to come. But I think so many investors have taken uh, a safe haven there, mm. regardless of what's going on, gone on in the rest of the market, that now Apple following suit and saying, hey, this applies to us as well. I, you know, I, I think, yeah, it, it, if you see any continued weakness in Apple, that is really what's going to lead to this market rolling over and this short-term bear market bottom probably trending much lower. So then, Julie, if you look at this news and just all of the other headlines surrounding Apple, do you read this and say, hey, maybe Apple's not the bellwether that it once was and maybe we should look at this and value this potentially differently? Well, I think we've been hearing consistently from tech businesses that they want to right-size their businesses. And it makes sense, right, because they've all been on major hiring sprees. Capital's been very loose for them. So it makes sense. What I think we're going to see broadly for the market is this type of business loss, job losses that are happening at the white-collar mid-tier employee. I think the lower-income hourly wage employee still has a great job and the outlook remains strong. But if you think about your average big business, they have one person running Facebook, one person running Instagram, some kind of teenager running their TikTok, and they're going to consolidate that <laughs> to just one person who's going to run all of their social media. I hope it's the teenager because they actually know what they're doing. And I, I think that has important implications, right, for, you know, this, the, the economy writ large. Yeah, I was going to say the teenager probably costs them a little less, too. Um, Jeff, is there any indication that, you know, what we're hearing from Apple today, Dan mentioned maybe it was almost a way to kind of pre-announce by potentially leaking. I mean, we don't know who the source was. Bloomberg cited uh, people familiar with the matter, but potentially getting this kind of less clean news out there now so that when earnings come along, it's already in the market. Do you expect to hear as more tech companies report um, over the next few weeks or so, more indications of this through the likes of both big and small tech. Yeah, that's my guess, and that's what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks on the show, really. And this is typical in terms of the development of the business cycle. You know, you tend to see new orders come down in PMIs, you tend to see housing data weaken, which is exactly what we saw this morning, and then you usually start to see an increase in initial unemployment claims. So we haven't really seen that yet. The labor market continues to be strong, but you start to get indications from companies like Apple, other big tech companies. So this is not unusual given where we are. And just speaking to Apple specifically, you know, this is a stock that we've talked about for a, a number number of weeks, if not months, on the show that you know it's still trading above its average price-to-earnings ratio, and its earnings have yet to come down. And I think that that is perhaps the next shoe to drop for this market uh, and the next shoe to drop for companies like Apple. It doesn't mean that they can't relatively outperform, but in terms of the stock marching higher from here, it could be difficult. We talked about retail sales on the show on Friday. You know, nominal retail sales up look pretty good, but real retail sales, so adjusted for inflation, are actually down. So people are spending more, they're getting less. So unit sales are falling. So think about companies like RH. You know, we've heard from those names uh, and they're seeing some weakness. Maybe Apple is next. So I would keep an eye out for that uh, come earnings.
Yeah, and I would just mention this, you know, Jeff, you just mentioned trading about 24 times this year, 22 and a half times next, and those expectations have not come down yet. I think that's really important. If you think about mid to high single digits, expected earnings and sales growth this year, that's basically in line with the S&P 500. And we've been saying that that needs to come down this year. And the S&P trades at less than 17 times that sort of number. So Apple still looks a bit fat. Why do you cut costs right now if you have high fixed costs, you have disruption? to your supply chains, if you have odd sort of demand situations as it relates to places like China, like Russia, that sort of thing. That's one reason why you might kind of leak it out there that you're going to slow some of these expenses, especially if your margins, which are expected to be 43% this year, largely predicated on a lot of stuff that you're doing in services, that's really important. So to them, they have to be cutting costs. Um, I don't think this is a really unexpected announcement. I think Bonwin just mentioned, we've heard from Netflix, we've heard from Meta, we've heard from uh, Microsoft. Amazon, Alphabet, all slowing hiring. Oracle is considering cutting thousands of jobs and lay that on top of all of these private tech companies. So it just makes sense. If you weren't doing it, you'd you'd start to kind of, you know, ask a few questions here. So the last point I'll just make is that obviously Apple is a huge um, part of S&P earnings, too. And so I think that if Apple were to guide lower, that might be the reason why strategists start to kind of lower at least their S&P earnings. We've already seen them come down on their targets. You know what I mean? But we need to see uh, the earnings estimate come down for this year. They do. I mean, the, the, the only real pocket that's kind of held up outside of Apple has really been energy. Yeah. And we're starting to see some volatility in that space as well. So I think this, this Apple news, while you don't want to hang your hat on it and make too much of it, I think investors right now are just on pins and needles, which, which kind of speaks to, I mean, look at the reversal that we had today. The, the last few trading sessions, we've opened at lows, depending on the day, and then we've rallied off of those lows. Today was the exact opposite. So I think investors are still really trying to get their footing. And anytime Apple comes out and makes, an, makes a, a statement like this, you, you have to take notice. I mean, you, you just have to. Yeah, and to your point, it's such a large weighting yep. in the index. So any bad news for Apple, bad news for the index. For all of us. For all of us, exactly. <laughs> uh, earnings out for IBM. Shares dropping more than five, uh, 4% in aftermarket trading. Big Blue beating on the top and bottom line, but margins coming in lower than street expectations. The stock more than erasing all of its gains for the year, the conference call getting underway about nine minutes ago. Let's get to our Bertha Coombs, who has the details. Uh, Bertha, how did they kick this thing off? Well, I uh, haven't heard on just yet. Nothing new. Overall, those adjusted gross margins, missing estimates with higher costs. But also what we're seeing here is another example of a global company facing strong dollar headwinds. They actually broke out the hit in the current quarter for each of its divisions, from a seven-point hit in terms of software to an eight-point hit in its consulting services. It added up to an overall currency impact on the top line of about $900 million. So they beat, but they might have beat more had the dollar been a little weaker. That's 200 more of a hit than what they thought in April. The company now sees a 6% FX revenue hit for the year, up from a previous forecast of 3 to 4%. Leslie, we're going to be hearing more about this from these global companies. Yeah, $900 million FX impact is nothing to sneeze at. Bertha, thank you. Uh, Julie, clearly a confluence of macro factors here, um, but it doesn't appear that the market's giving them any sort of pass, uh, you know, thinking that this FX impact is a one-time thing, things will look better from here, um, especially with the dollar weakening. Why do you think that is? I think there's concern that that is going to be persistent. Um, and I think there's the realization that, honestly, we have not been factoring in 
the headwinds of FX clearly enough into the models. You don't see any S&P revisions based on FX headwinds. And I, I think it's going to be a much, much bigger deal than people are counting on. And it makes sense, right? Because yes, uh, it could be a one-time thing, but we don't know how long the dollar will stay persistently as high as it has been. It has implications for, does that make our goods so much more expensive that foreign countries decide to switch into other things? It's, it, it's just, it has relevant implications both for margins, for cash flow, and the future runway of, of growth. I think that's why, you know, for us, we prefer some of these smaller businesses that don't have geopolitical risk, that don't have exposure to FX. I think those businesses are cleaner and, and if they have a good balance sheet, they'll be better positioned for a downturn. Yeah, the plight of the multinational uh, still in focus here in the second quarter. Let's get some more color on those IBM earnings. Jared Weisfeld of Jefferies is here to break down this report. He is a U.S. tech sector specialist and managing director. Um, so, you know, despite the market reaction, you do believe that the guidance that they gave, reiterating guidance, is bullish for this stock. Uh, why do you think the investors in the after hours don't agree with you? Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me back on. So I think we need to take a little step back here in terms of uh, understanding what just uh, what just occurred. So certainly a mixed earnings report in terms of revenue strength, despite FX headwinds that you've highlighted being offset by by margin pressure and a reduction to their full year uh, free cash flow guide. So, you know, they put they posted fifteen and a half billion dollars of revenue about $300 million ahead of the street, despite incremental FX headwinds, uh, really driven by their infrastructure and consulting business. I think most importantly for their full-year guide, which you referred to, they are reiterating their full-year guide with respect to constant currency growth at the high end of their mid-single-digit range. So I think from an IBM standpoint, a little bit of a disappointment from an expectations perspective. The stock has outperformed the NASDAQ by almost 30% year-to-date. So the shares are a little bit weaker here as gross margin weakness has eaten to the stock. But in terms of read through to the broader sector, I actually think pretty encouraging in terms of them being able to maintain their full year guide. Is IBM still a bellwether? You know, as you speak about the read through to the broader sector, I mean, can we look at these numbers and say, okay, this is this is going to potentially um, indicate what we what we might see from big tech this year? Yes. So IBM has done a, a really extraordinary job over the last five years transforming the company into a really a play on the hybrid cloud and divesting their low growth businesses like Kindrel, doubling down on software, acquiring Red Hat four years ago. And they're going to continue to acquire, you know, the, C the, the CEO has talked about M&A as a core competency of the organization, three to four billion dollars a year in M&A at least. Uh, and I, I certainly think it, it's certainly much more of a bellwether than it has been if you, uh, five to 10 years ago as the company really did restructure during, uh, during the last five years and align themselves with the, uh, with the public cloud. Hi, this is Bono one here. So, so given all the idiosyncratic things that are happening in IBM and their own restructuring story, can you kind of uh, you know, expand a little bit in terms of what things we should be looking at from this earnings release that we may be able to extrapolate into tech uh, and tech companies that are getting ready to release next week uh, as a whole? For sure. If we put things in context, I think um, we were talking about this earlier in terms of just in investors on pins and needles, everyone nervous heading into this earnings season. You know, this is really our first touch point on the health of the IT enterprise budget right now. We had comments from the CEO of ServiceNow, Bill McDermott, a few weeks ago, which really rattled software investors with shares closing down 7 to 10% on the day as he talked about incremental headwinds to the business, really strong FX uh, headwinds against the company. And despite that, you have IBM here really reiterating 
writing their full year guide. So um, I think it's it. You certainly can take comfort in terms of their ability to reiterate their full year. They talked about broad demand strength across all geographies, pretty broad based. Uh, so I, I certainly think incrementally positive with respect yeah. to really negative investor expectations. Jared, uh, I apologize. We're going to have to take a pause here because we do have some breaking news on Twitter. Julia Borson has the details for us. Julia. Yes, Twitter has filed in response to Elon Musk's filing, saying that he did not think that the Twitter trial should be expedited. This all happens and this filing comes ahead of the hearing tomorrow in which the judge will determine the schedule of the trial. Um, so interestingly, just looking through this filing here, um, Twitter says twi that Musk's opposition, quote, fails at every level um, and says that he does not present any reason that the trial must wait until next year. He, the, this filing says, quote, Musk's alleged core issue, the number of spam Twitter accounts, is a contractually irrelevant sideshow that Musk wants to use to disparage Twitter and prolong this litigation. I'm going on to say that there is no reason here um, that, that, that Musk gives no reason to delay this trial. So we will learn more in the hearing tomorrow, which I believe is at 11 a.m. Eastern. Guys, back over to you. Julia, thank you. You can see shares down about half a percentage point. Uh, they say that this very public dispute harms Twitter with each passing day. Musk is in breach. Uh, yeah, it clearly does. I mean, he's really talking about the core in which how they like calculate important metrics of their business. The company has said that they've been doing it in, in, in the way that they, you know, have been for years. And I mean, listen, at the end of the day, the stock's up 19 percent from, you know, just a week ago or so. And so um, it's not harming the stock right now. I just fear that if there is some sort of resolution that's adverse to Twitter, um, the stock's going much lower. I mean, you think about how much, you know, Snap is down on a similar revenue base. They're growing faster. They monetize better. We've talked about it a lot on the show here. The quarter that, that Twitter is going to report this week is not going to be particularly great. I just can't imagine that they're going to have much good to say, although they'd love to try to put lipstick on a pig. They're just not going to be able to do that here. So um, at the end of the day, if Musk is gone and the Delaware court is not enforcing him to do anything, this stock has a two handle on it. It's in the 20s very easily, in my opinion. Uh, Jared, I want to ask you, because you, you mentioned the prospect of M&A for IBM. Uh, what do you think the prospect for M&A is throughout the entire tech sector, um, you know, just given kind of what we've seen with Twitter. Obviously, this one is a, a special situation, a little bit hairy, a little bit messy, given uh, the contentiousness here. But just broadly speaking, um, you know, as we kind of settle at some lower levels, do you expect to see more of this? For sure. I mean, go, going back to the earlier point, just to comment on Twitter, you know, I want to reiterate that, you know, for sure, the, the, de the deal is certainly holding up the stock right now. If you were to look at historical Twitter's trough multiple, it was about nine times EBITDA. So going to the earlier point in terms of without the deal, where would that stock be at trough valuations? It kind of puts it at 23 to $25 a share. With respect to broader uh, broader industry M&A, look, we've had $160 billion of software M&A year to date, and we're only seven months in the year. That's certainly aided by VMware and, uh, and Broadcom, which is a $70 billion transaction. But I certainly expect more M&A to continue. Even the CEO of IBM has talked about the ability to borrow from future years of M&A, where historic, he only wants to do three to four billion, but given the depressed valuations in the sector, we certainly think that we're going to have more M&A uh, to come, especially in software. All right, Jared, thank you so much. Um, Jeff, I want to turn to you on the Twitter news because, uh, you know, an expedited trial, uh, it, an expedited court situation is paramount for this company as it seeks to maintain uh, the, the potential deal. And it's a $44 billion situation for them. 
Um, you know, do you agree with Dan that this is a stock that's in its 20s if it does fall through? Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time believing otherwise, honestly. And I think at this point, any headline is going to move the stock one way or the other. It's sort of in purgatory until you get some answers here. And frankly, I just don't understand how a company that's had problems monetizing to this point and there's some big question mark about actual human eyeballs on All right, the platform. Jeff, I apologize. Uh, we're getting a little bit of uh, static and difficulty with your feed, um, but we will cut to break. Hopefully we'll get that up and running shortly. Coming up, crude crushing it. Oil prices breaking back above the $100 level. So will energy continue to pump higher? The details next. Plus, earnings season in full swing as the rest of the big banks report, the financial follow-through, and the impact on your money when fast money returns. We're back in two. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out this energizing rally in WTI crude oil prices jumping back above 100 bucks a barrel. Energy, the best performing sector in the S&P. Names like Hess, Devon Energy, Halliburton, Marathon Oil, and ConocoPhillips all moving higher today. Uh, Dan, yeah. you got Halliburton reporting tomorrow. So I think there's a, like a couple fun things here, if, you know, for some of these guys who want to nerd out and gals here a little bit. So the dollar sold off finally, right? You see finally. what crude did? Mm-hmm. So crude have been selling off last two weeks and, and that thing rallies. And so I think that's probably one component. But I also think it's interesting. Keep an eye, and we talk about this a lot. Watch these large integrators, the XLE, you know, 40% of that is Exxon and Chevron. OIH is um, all the drills. Do you see how the stocks actually underperform the commodity? Today. So that leads me to believe that maybe I had something more to do with the move in the dollar. So let's see. You know, I mean, our friend Carter Braxton Worth has been saying that the dollar likely to come off three, four percent or something like that back to that uptrend. If you watch the Dixie there, maybe get you back to two or one or three and a half or so. And so it'd be interesting to see how much room that also gives crude oil. And then the other thing is, is that a lot of us were saying it was like, well, they probably sell crude 
into the MBS Biden meeting and maybe they buy on the way out. So some of that going on. But again, let's see how the stocks act, because you said it, Bonwin, is that 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 is one of the bright spots in S&P earnings or at least the expectation would be energy. If the stocks put up big numbers and they don't perform, that would be a bad tell, I think, for the S&P. And Julie, the the supply crunch still continues. I mean, nothing has changed. In fact, it's only gotten worse in Europe. Um, You know, we we mentioned the dollar a little bit weaker, finally. But, um, you know, where do you see oil going from here? Because it seems like there's been a little bit of a a range-bound activity recently. Well, supply is for sure still constrained. You know, I think it was interesting, you know, seeing the comments out of uh, Biden's meeting in the Middle East, it was sort of like, you know, when you get the story of why a couple broke up and they both have very different answers, it sounded like Biden said it sounded great. And, you know, coming out of the Middle East didn't really sound like a lot got done. So, you know, I think the outlook is still really uncertain. We know that supply is going to be tight. I don't see any real reason for crude to be dropping, but, you know, there is the impact of the dollar. So it's hard to predict. And I think that's why for us as long-term investors, you know, playing these stocks is pretty tricky. Maybe it was the fist bump that caused the bump. I don't know, in prices. Uh, Bonowin, on the demand side of the equation, you do still have China. You've got mass testing going on there. There's no indication that they wouldn't shut down economies on a continued basis if they continue to find more cases. Uh, Is that not having any kind of impact here? Well, I think you have a lot of, like, very binary risk as it it pertains to the energy conflict. You have Russia, Ukraine. You have China and, and zero covid um, and you have inflation here, and then you have the dollar. So I think all of those things kind of come together for like a, a confluence of events that are leading to the volatility that we see. I will say, and I think Dan is spot on in terms of like the dollar and, and how it's correlated to, to uh, crude and, and other energy, the, the energy complex overall. What I will say, though, is that we have seen um, this, disp- this disparity between the actual commodity and the shares for some time. That isn't like necessarily a new phenomenon. So he clearly knows more than I do at this particular point in time about what this is. I, I, I can't say that's like a definite, I can't say that I'm seeing a new trend as it pertains to a divergence between share prices and the actual commodity. So I, I would expect that to, to continue somewhat. I do think that if you see any movement in any of the three things that I mentioned, clearly you'll see uh, you know, a large move one way or the other. And we'll get a sense from Halliburton tomorrow when Absolutely. it reports. Um, there's a lot more fast to come. Here is what is coming up next. Earning season is in full swing. And our next guest says there's one key component that could mean big things for stocks. We'll break down what he's watching next. Plus, home builder blues. Sentiment plunging to its lowest level since the start of the pandemic. So is it time to close the door on the home building trade? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. 
Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to Fast Money, the last of the major banks reporting earnings today. Goldman finishing the day higher. Strong bond trading revenues, big plus there, but a slowdown in deal making and concerns about, quote, entrenched inflation, a cause for future concern. Bank of America essentially flat, but CEO Brian Moynihan sounding kind of bullish on the consumer in an interview with Unclosing Bell with Sarah Eisen saying that in the first two weeks of July, spending is 11 percent higher than last year. Transactions are up six to seven percent. So what are we to make of today's results and commentary? Jeff on the fast line with us now. You've got like this tale of two economies. If you kind of read through these banks, on one hand, you have very strong consumer. Uh, that's evident in both deposit growth. It's evident in loan growth. It's evident in net interest income results. It's a profitability from higher interest rates for loan making. But then on the other hand, you've got all of the markets related activity setting aside trading that saw a big decline. Anything that has to do with investment banking, uh, both deal making advisory as well as capital markets, big pullback during the quarter. Uh, the wealth management, asset management, saw those tick down due to volatility. So what do we make of this and kind of the read through on the economy? Yeah, I, I think it's really just a continuation of what we talked about earlier, quite honestly. And, you know, I know things look good currently, but I wonder if what banks are saying is more an indication of what was and not what is going to be. You know, I, I just think about the fact that uh, the yield curve is inverted. And I, I did a little bit of analysis today. I looked at yield curve inversions and how J.P. Morgan did against the S&P 500 after those periods. And you know, the story isn't particularly good. And my opinion is that the economy is going to get worse. And I think consumers are currently propping up spending by increasing their credit. And it, you know, it's not unusual to see credit growth right before a recession. So you know, I think ultimately this rally that we're seeing in banks, we're right back to that 50-day uh, it was very, very weak heading into earnings, so you have this bounce, but I, I would fade it. I think ultimately it ends up breaking your heart just as it gets sucked down with a lot of the other cyclical names as the economy slows. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. And, Jeff, you and I, we've been talking about this. Is like the one thing that hasn't happened yet. I know that we're going to talk about housing. Anecdotally, it sounds like housing is rolling over. So we have a negative wealth effect from the stock market. Um, we also have this situation where we haven't seen unemployment really tick up in a meaningful manner. But what did we spend a first few minutes of the show talking about some of the biggest employers yeah. in our country slowing hiring? So I think once we see that unemployment rate come up off of 40-year lows, these were the pre-pandemic lows at 3 0.6%. I think that will be the kind of nail in the coffin for the consumer. And I don't mean like lights out, like, you know, GFC sort of stuff. I just mean that we have a consumer that the savings rate has gone down a lot. Even if you believe that that data that Moynihan's speaking about in June and July is backward looking, it's likely to get worse from here. And we're already starting to see loan growth decelerate a little bit here, too. So to me, I don't think it's a great setup. And I do think this kind of situation between Moynihan and Jamie Dimon is pretty interesting because <laughs> when Jamie's 
said they're preparing for an economic hurricane. Yep. Moynihan clapped back a little bit, and it seems like he's reiterating a little bit about that. And J.P. Morgan stock is right back to where it was right before it reported. So to me, I'm going to keep a closer eye on what J.P. Morgan stock's doing and what Jamie Dimon's saying than right now about Bank of America. Interesting, because I will say, having listened to all six, I had the joy and pleasure of listening yeah. to all six of those big bank uh, earnings calls. And Brian did kind of stand out in his kind of sanguine, kind of shrugging off some of the risks out there. And I'm curious, Julie, is this a factor of just kind of Bank of, bank of America and how they've been executing on their business? Or do you think it's that, you know, maybe he really does think that the environment isn't that that worrisome and maybe we could shrug off some sort of recession and that his peers have it wrong? Well, I mean, he does have an exposure that's very different than some of the other players. You know, I mean, it's, you know, Goldman's business looks fantastic from a trading standpoint, but obviously there's been no IPOs, no major debt originations. And so all of the investment bankers are kind of sitting on their hands right now. Um, and so all of these bulge bracket firms, they have different strengths and weaknesses, be it private wealth, uh, investment banking, trading, or the consumer. I agree that I think J.P. Morgan is really the one to watch because I think they have the most insight on the consumer, given the, the reach of their business. And, you know, I'm siding more with Jamie Dimon. I, I can't I can't speak for Brian. You know, it's probably for the best that I don't actually. Um, <laughs> but I, I think generally speaking, you know, it's it doesn't look like a very positive environment for multiple reasons in terms of different places all kind of weakening. For us, the bulge brackets aren't really a great place to play. I agree. It's a heartbreak. Yeah, for those on the East Coast in the New York area today, it was more like hurricane conditions here mm. on the day that Bank of America reported. So that was also a bit confusing, but, you know, we'll get through it. Despite today's market pullback, our next guest sees encouraging signs in the early days of earnings season. Julian Emanuel is the Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Uh, so, Julian, uh, you seem to kind of be more on the Brian Moynihan camp of guys look at all of this consumer data. Uh, the labor force is strong. The unemployment numbers are strong. Um, you know, maybe we can avoid a recession here. I think you hit the nail on the head a few moments ago, Leslie, when you said it was a tale of two economies. It's really more like a tale of 10 economies. And whether you're parsing the financial earnings themselves, which had different share price reactions and, and different sort of things that they were you know, extenuating that were good and, and talking down that weren't as great. Basically, when you think about it, you go back to Friday, the data from Friday is telling you, A, that inflation expectations are coming in, and B, that the labor market continues strong. And I would note that today's obviously mover and shaker uh, with the world's most iconic uh, consumer brand basically talked about a hiring slowdown. It didn't talk about layoffs. And that's a critical difference to us that when we think about earnings and we think about where stocks are now, we think there's upside simply because there may be overpricing of this recession that some people believe is imminent or is actually upon us. But then do we actually need a recession for stocks to go down from here? Because there was actually a headline today uh, from strategists at Morgan Stanley that basically said, even if there isn't a recession, we could still see the stock market go down even further from here, given just the concerns about the stock market, the psychology of the stock market. Is that something that you're focused on or, or you see as a, a likely possibility? So actually, in, in terms of the psychology, there's sort of two ways to look at it. Uh, the retail investor... Uh, it continues to have exposure to equities 
towards the higher end of his or her range. But when you think about it, not necessarily pressed to have to sell because their labor market situation is still good. Um, the institutional investor, on the other hand, has had sort of this bearish mindset in reaction to this new inflation paradigm for some months now. And institutions, by and large, are at the low end of their exposures. So I think that really shows why the market has been a push-pull for the last month. And ultimately, it's our view that stocks are going to be able to surmount some of the negative headlines through earnings seasons and continue higher in what we think is a bear market rally. Yeah. In some cases, it's kind of the opposite of what we saw during the pandemic era, where the market was continuing continuing to go higher, while the economy was struggling a bit more. Now it looks like there's a little bit of a, a 180 that's taken place there. Potentially. Only time will tell. Uh, Julian, thank you. Uh, let's trade it, Bonnie. I'm just looking after today's performance, after earnings season, there are two banks that are outperforming the S&P 500, Wells Fargo, and City, I think if you had asked me maybe at the end of last year which two banks they would be, it may not have said those. Uh, I think City is probably the one of all of them. I mean, for, for a while, this thing was trading, I want to say, like half a, half a point on book value, 0.5. I, don't quote me exactly on there, but it was like 0.5 to 0.7 was the range there. I still think that one trades uh, particularly cheap. And again, there's like a restructuring uh, situation around there that I think leads them to have their own idiosyncratic story and growth story going forward. That would probably be my pick of the group. Generally speaking, I'm kind of in the camp with Jeff Mills here in that, I, as I, and I said it, going in earnings. You might see a pop after earnings if you get anything remotely positive, and then you might see things start to roll over. And like, I, I actually listen to Jamie. I, I, I understand that there is a perception that he always tends to be more cautious. But I want a CEO that's going to give me the bad news and then you know, like outperform expectations. So, you know, in terms of the general space, I'm not particularly constructive with the with an inverted yield curve, but I think City has its own story there, and that's probably where I'd be. Yeah, and I think there's obviously the near-term benefit, the near-term near tailwind of rising interest rates. The question, though, is how long that will be a benefit and when it stabilizes and, you know, what happens in 2023. I think investors are reacting to that. Yeah, but the higher interest rates are the thing that's going to cause the stagflation, that's going to cause the recession, that's going to cause higher unemployment. Okay, so I want to focus a little bit more on what David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, had to say, that inflation is deeply entrenched, okay, in the economy. So if we were to have, let's say, peak this or peak that, or it doesn't matter, because Jamie Dimon also told us last week before their earnings report that the Fed's, um, I guess their target of 4% inflation, right, down from 9% is really optimistic. So the point is, as Guy Dami would say, it's going to be persistent and pesky. And therefore, you know, if we have this situation where rates don't really go meaningfully lower and, and, and growth doesn't really materialize, not good for the stock market. Oh, and by the way, Solomon also mentioned on the call, or, or maybe it was the CFO of Goldman Sachs, that they are um, slowing the velocity of hiring as well, right. just like Apple. So we talked about the tech companies doing that. It's starting to take place at the banks. We heard that from Wells Fargo as yep. well, particularly in their mortgage business a few weeks ago. So Another thing to keep an eye on. Uh, quick programming note, our own Jim Cramer is kicking off his first show at his new set at the New York Stock Exchange. Don't miss a very special Mad Money right after Fast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Confidence among home builders dropped 12 points in July. That's the biggest single month drop in the survey's history outside of April 2020, the heart of the pandemic. Home builder stocks down slightly on the day, but the X. 
HB Home Builder ETF still down over 30% this year. So what does the latest read on builders mean for the housing sector, Jeff? Not on the uh, We may not have. As well as. There he is. I'm here. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. All right. Sorry. Tons of technical difficulties tonight. I was just saying it was very <laughs> important from a, a macro perspective. I, I, I have a chart that looks at uh, housing versus initial unemployment claims. And I think as housing deteriorates, then you start to see profits deteriorate. Then you start to see the labor market deteriorate. So we're kind of following this typical pattern. Uh, quickly, just on builders, you know, I think the good is that they're very, very cheap. And I think that's perhaps why you got this really bad housing number and then builders actually rallied. You know, the concerning part is that you know, the structural support that exists for housing is being overwhelmed by the affordability issue that we have right now. Buyer traffic way down in the report. Um, but I wonder, after already underperforming by, you know, that 25, 30 percent at half its average P.E., you know, it's hard for me to buy right now. But just maybe this is a cyclical area of the market that's already priced in a fair bit of bad news. Yeah, that's that's possible. Uh, Jeff, thank you. Coming up, merger mania heading for the media space. Netflix shares down for the year as we head into earnings. But is a deal in store for the streaming diet? The details ahead. Plus, more coin in the crypto space. Shares of Coinbase surging in today's session as Bitcoin jumps. So is there a warm up coming for the crypto space? Don't go anywhere. There's more fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix bucking today's sell-off up nearly 1% as we await earnings after the bell tomorrow. But the stock is still down nearly 70% this year. Has the pullback in the name made it a takeout target? Julia Borston is back and joins us with the very latest on this front. Julia. Well, whether or not Netflix becomes a takeout target depends on what it reports tomorrow and over the course of the rest of this year and how much its stock moves lower. Now, investors will be very much focused on that key Netflix subscriber number. The company is expected to lose 2 million subs in the second quarter and to guide to the addition of 1.8 million subs in the third quarter. If its results or if its guidance are worse than that, that could play into analyst concerns about the whole streaming sector. KeyBank saying in a new report out today that it's seeing signs that streaming may not be recession-proof, with price sensitivity increasing. It lowered estimates for both Netflix and Roku. Now, to help stem declines, Netflix has been working to crack down on password sharing, just today announcing that it's launching an add-a-home feature, which is a new discounted way for people to add subscribers, which would then benefit the streamer. Now, we may learn more about another effort to boost its revenue, which is the ad-supported service um, we'll hear more about how it aims to use that to drive growth. But if Netflix disappoints and if the stock plummets, it could draw M&A interest. Microsoft could look to do more with its new partner. Apple has shown growing interest in media, though, of course, it is limited by regulatory scrutiny. And Comcast and NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company, could be looking for more scale to build on the company's strength in ad-supported streaming. Now, we are also looking ahead to results from Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery. Down the line, both of those could be M&A targets as well. Leslie? 
So maybe we could be bringing back the bundle after all, just in the streaming world. Thank you, Julia. Let's uh, let's trade it. Dan, yeah, quick take. Talk, talk about what they're going to come out with. I mean, the options market is pricing about a 14% move in either direction. Last quarter, the stock sold off 35%, 25% the quarter after that. So here's the good news about having that kind of whisper number about the amount of subs they're going to lose. It's kind of out there if it's not much worse than that. I do expect one more big gap lower in the stock, but I would not be kind of waiting around for... Um, um, some big company to buy, a company that is like run by Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings. I don't think those guys are going to be selling for $75 billion market value, that sort of thing. So to me, I think that's going to be a really tough pill to swallow here. But I'm long the stock. I bought it last month, and I'm actually waiting for another gap lower. This bottom is going to take a while because the transformation of this company is going to take a while, too. So I don't think there's any V reversal coming anytime soon. Not expecting uh, M&A potential to put a floor under the stock, at least right now. Sticking with Netflix, options traders are betting that tomorrow's report could drive the stock significantly lower by the end of the week. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Yeah, as Dan was just pointing out, implying a very big move. It was 14%. Actually, it was over 15% by the day's close. It traded over three times the average daily put volume and puts out pace calls by more than two to one. We saw big buyers of the weekly 100 strike puts, believe it or not, and also the 150s. Those were the two busiest options, trading 50,000 and 6,400 respectively. I don't know if it's going to go that much lower, but it is clear that some options traders think that there is further downside potentially after earnings. All right. Thank you, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Up next, Warren Buffett continuing to binge on energy, his latest buy after the break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Occidental Petroleum topping the tape today. The shares up about 0.7% after rising more than 2% in the regular session. Berkshire Hathaway buying another 1.9 million shares in the energy company, bringing its stake to about 20%. Jeff, what's your read on this? Yeah, look, I think it's a valuation play, right? Whether you're talking about Oxy, whether you're talking about ExxonMobil trading at eight times forward, you know, we were way overbought. We were 30% above the 200-day, but now, you know, XOP, Chevron, XOM, LNG, they're all back to the 200-day. I think oil stays here. I think that's enough, uh, maybe more, to support these valuations going forward. So I can, I can understand what's going on. Bonowin, with a 20% stake, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway has got to have even more influence in the boardroom than they did even a few months ago when they started buying. I mean, that's what you want there. I will say this is actually a pretty nuanced play on, on, on a public way of playing like an LBO market, right? You look at like the, the, the balance sheet and the debt that they have, and then you look at the free cash flow, which is about $10 billion this year. If they can continue to pay, use that cash to pay down debt, you're looking at a cash cow going forward, and I think that's exactly what Warren Buffett is playing for. That's usually what he does pay for, his <laughs> cash cows. Uh, up next, your final trades. Welcome back. Moments away from a special Mad Money. Jim Cramer kicking things off in his new set at the New York Stock Exchange. He's talking with billionaire investor Ken Langone and Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. Catch those interviews at the top of the hour on Mad Money. It's time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie, starting with you. Uh, I like the business Avalara Technologies. This is a business that has really durable long-term growth, both in the U.S. and abroad. And people think of it as just being really exposed to e-commerce, which we know is weakening, but it's really a comprehensive tax automation software solution. It's got a lot of operating leverage, and I think it's a good opportunity right here. All right, Bonowin. Oldie but goodie, CVS. And Dan. Yeah, bank stocks, I'm a seller here. 
All right, cover that in depth today. Thanks for watching Fast Money, Mad Money with Jim Cramer at the New York Stock Exchange. Starts right now. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.